Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 246 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsor. Well, we'd definitely like to thank ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit ServeNow.com to learn more. And it's also a good time to remind you that the second edition of our book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, is available right now on Amazon. So uh, if you're interested in seeing what we've updated in the new book, please head over to Amazon and take a look. In our last episode, we discussed how you recognize that the technology that you are still using has hit the end of the road and what you need to do about that. In this episode, we talk about uh, the complex answers uh, we have to what seems to be a simple question about blogging and social media. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, we will see how complex this gets. But uh, Dennis, in the in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we will indeed be discussing blogging versus other forms of social media, because frankly, isn't blogging a form of social media? Um, and the impact that sites like Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn has had on longtime bloggers like the two of us. Uh, in our second segment, we'll talk about hardware and software reviews these days and how much they really help us. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. Uh, but first up, did social media kill the blogging star? Uh, Carla Reyes, who is a law professor uh, at Michigan State University College of Law and heads up the legal R&D program there, she retweeted a blog post from another law professor, uh, Professor Robert Anderson, who is at Pepperdine Law School, um, that she wanted people to talk about. And the, the question that post at first seems fairly simple, but um, the answers we think are were worthy of more discussion, um, and we thought our answers might make a good podcast episode. So here was the question. The question was, um, I must say that blogging really does seem to have mostly died out in legal academia. Many of the formerly vibrant group blogs have effectively ceased creating much original content. I wonder whether the supply dried up because the demand just wasn't there or what? That's the question. And uh, a, a professor at McGill, Professor Jacob Levy, said, true of almost all academic blogging and a lot of blogging in general, social media ate blogging. With that comment, that thus was born this episode. And Dennis, I guess it was that comment, social media ate blogging, that got you interested in this topic, right? Yeah, it really was. I and because I, I think that we've felt this for a while that it's it. There has been definitely a, a movement away from blogging to social media, and it's been going on, on for a long time. Um, so I thought it was actually a, a great time to revisit the question because, in some ways, you see a little bit of uptick in in blogging. Definitely some attention to it, um, but still, uh, I think more goes on in social media these days because there are just a lot, lot more channels. I also realized right away that, and this is like one of my little 
pet peeves, I guess, is that I think Twitter is just a terrible place to have these uh, discussions. And then I was going to to post on my blog an answer to it, and then I kind of just thought that actually a blog wasn't the best place to answer the question. So it turned out I decided that podcasts was actually the best way to to have the discussion. So um, that's where we came out. And I, th- I think it does lead to both the comment and the question. And my response to it really does create an interesting commentary or framework on, on what channels might be best or most appropriate for different types of communication and conversation. Okay, and I think we want to. I want to get to. I think we get to that closer to the end of this discussion because I want to come back to the question at hand, and I want to answer Professor Reyes's question, which is why did it die out, or why has this happened? Because frankly, I think that Professor Levy's response is only part of the response, and I think it's incomplete. And I think we need to first say, you know, why has blogging died out in legal academia? Because I'm, I am of the opinion, and I think your and my friend Kevin O'Keefe would disagree with this too, with the notion that blogging in general has died out. I think that blogging is not what it used to be, but I think there is still quite a lot of content being created. And, you know, not to give any spoilers away about what we're going to say, is that we think that it still has an important part in a lawyer's arsenal of tools that they have to provide content to people. So I want to focus first on on either answering or tr- trying to provide some insight as to why the phenomenon might be the case with regard to law schools and law professors. What are some of the reasons why this has happened? I have my reasons. I'd like to hear yours. I think there are a couple of things. And there is a note in the uh, or, uh, an important part in the original question, which which talks about the formerly vibrant group blogs. And I, I and and that really is so one answer, a clear answer there is that group blogs have proven historically really hard to keep going. And Tom, I, I think you and I have been uh, part of a number of group blogs that were vibrant and no longer exist. So it's hard to sustain these. But, you know, I, I'm going to interrupt and say, I'll say, to me, that seems, and maybe we've discussed this on the podcast before, but to me, that seems illogical. It seems like a group blog would be easier to keep up than a single blog because you're hopefully always going to have somebody who has time or energy or the wherewithal to put together a blog post. Whereas with a single blog, if that person doesn't feel like doing anything, that's dying out a whole lot quicker. Well, I will show you exhibit A, Tom, which are the emails you sent to me during the time of the Between Lawyers uh, blog where you said, I don't know what to write. I don't have time to write. This is really difficult. And the five of us uh, reached a point where we said, we, we don't even know what what goes into this this blog anymore. So that that I, that's why I think that the, the group blog thing is because eventually you sort of roll back to your, to your own interests. And then in the group, you realize that interests start to evolve and change over time. But I would say, though, that with the law school community with professor blogs if you're i mean all of those profs blogs 
group blogs that were out there for a while, I thought they were great ideas. They had a common interest, which was the area of law in which they practice. So there's ethics blog, and there's employment law, and there's other types, criminal law. And they were all out there, and they and so there, there should not have been a lack of information to talk on. So I think that that may be part of the reason, but I would say that's not the only reason. So another part of the reason in the, the academic blogs is as you look at what you get credit for, especially in your, if you're uh, going for tenure, what you get credit for in publication and then on an ongoing basis, what people like to see or what your university likes from to see from you is the publication in the academic journals. And so I think it's almost like you get patted on the head for blogs. Uh, so so it doesn't have like the heft, I think, in academia that the traditional articles have, which is in some ways um, kind of funny to me, Tom, because your blog posts could have uh, many hundreds of percent more readers than your than the readers in your in the academic articles. Well, and I'll tell you, I think that of all the reasons we're going to talk about why the legal professor blogging has declined, to me, that's the one that makes the most sense and is the most viable. If, um, if, if law professors aren't going to get ahead by doing it, if it's not providing them with uh, a means towards tenure, then it makes perfect sense to me why, um, why that's not happening. I don't know that that applies to the rest of the legal community, but I think certainly to the legal, you know, legal academia community, it certainly does make sense. You know, I think when people, um, you know, still put a lot of emphasis on the mere, what I call like the status of, say, print publications and, and certain types of publications versus audience, um, I, I think those those factors will will come into it, you know, so that's, uh, so you need to think about that. I would say the, the other thing that to me has really become the, the big issue in blogging, and I think this is whether it's academic blogs or across the board is, is, is and this is my first, first answer that came to mind when I saw the question is, is what's known as the TLDR culture we have, which is too long, didn't read, and, and people just don't like to read long things. They're frequently tweeting about posting, linking to things that they haven't read. Um, and sometimes with the hashtag that says TLDR that says, hey, I didn't read this, but I'm throwing it out there. So I think that has an impact uh, where you're looking at definitely the shorter attention spans, the need to to put together things in readable formats, uh, the emphasis on infographics, other things like that, that, that appeal to uh, you know, the world of increasing or decreasing attention span. So I think you have to figure out a way to, to fit blogs into that audience in general. And so in some cases, you just find that, that Twitter or LinkedIn or uh, other things uh, are different ways to do this. So I would say, Tom, for you and me, I, although I think of myself always as a blogger and a writer first, I would say that in my longer form, when I'm thinking longer form, writing, creation, communication, I think of this podcast first for that rather than the blog these days. So it's it's a, it's almost like I think there's a portfolio of communication channels and blogging is one of it. And, and, and if you have a number of them, then you're trying to choose which is the right one. So first to come back to your initial, your initial response, I think that as a general rule, the ease 
of of which it is to post social media is in large part why many people do not blog or why people who previously blogged now spend more time on social media. The fact that you can put something out in 280 characters and happen, I, I'm, I'll tell you, if, if people are going to put blog posts into tweet storms so that they have multiple, multiple tweets that could have filled up a blog post, that's kind of where I start to lose patience and I stop reading people on Twitter. But I think that it's definitely a, it is definitely a cause of why blogging has gone down. But by the same token, a lot of those people who are tweeting things are tweeting articles or blog posts. So somebody's still writing them. So it's not that, and I think that Kevin's right. I think that there's more blogging than ever. I still think that that's going on. But I think that not just law professors, but anybody, I think that, that they're finding that getting your exposure and putting your information out via social media is much, there's much less friction to it than there would be through blogging. But I think that where, where you're getting to as far as portfolio is kind of where I want to get to by the end of this segment, which is really to, to, to come back to the idea that we've mentioned, I think we've probably mentioned this in two or three podcasts before, but it's, uh, it's, it's Chris Brogan, um, his idea of the, the hub and spokes of your content community, if we call it something like that, or, or the content portfolio that Dennis wants to talk about, and that the blog tends to be the place where you stake your main content. That's your hub. That's the place where you can post the information that truly belongs to you. I think, Dennis, you'll talk about why you've adopted that approach, at least. Uh, even though you say the podcast is more important, you're also going to talk about a blog-first approach. So that's, that, that plays into it as well. But I still think that the hub-and-spokes approach is a smart place to be, whether you're a lawyer or not, which is have a blog where you can control the content that you create if you decide to do long form content, but then advertise that content and or engage otherwise on the other channels, which become the spokes with the LinkedIn, the Twitter, the Facebook, the whatever it is that you wind up uh, participating in. And it all roads lead back to your hub uh, because having a place of your own, I still think makes the most sense. Being out on these individual sites are good for you to spread things, but I don't think that they help your career and, and whatever marketing you want to do as much as having your own website with your own content does. Sorry, that was long. Too long. Didn't listen. Yeah, well, you know, but I think that's that becomes part of it because what is attractive to us and, and if we look at our own histories of blogging and, and how we kind of moved over toward more of our output in terms of quantity is is in in social media it is that uh, and and there's actually some a lot of truth I think in this social media eight blogging uh comment, but it's, it is so much easier to post in social media than it is to write a well-crafted blog post or even a, a not well-crafted blog post. It just takes more time. It's also really easy to post short things and, that make you feel like you're profound or that you're witty. And then I, I find a lot of people uh, post things on social media or retweet things that they haven't read and they turn out to be wrong. There's like a huge flurry of of legal academics last week retweeting a post that was uh, that had been disproved on on Snopes like 
10 years ago and it like took on a new life and nobody retweeted that they, Hey, sorry, we posted something that, that wasn't true. So it's easy to step away from. And then, then I think there's that addictive part of social media where you do get an instantaneous response with the likes and the retweets and stuff like that. And, and, uh, and you get some stats on that and maybe some actual engagement. And it's uh, historically, it's always been harder with a blog uh, to get that instantaneous uh, response. So, I mean, uh, you know, there's a number of things there. I also think the decline or sort of the lack of awareness about RSS these days where it used to be such an important tool in the days of Google Reader, especially to deliver blogs. I think there's a less of that. And then just one comment, you know, Tom, you know how I hate tweet storms, but to me, if I'm thinking about expressing some ideas and thinking how, if I think about the, my audience at all and wanting to help them understand what I'm writing, to me, like these lengthy tweet storms that are numbered and uh, are just like giving the middle finger to the to the reader. That's that's my opinion of that. So uh, I'll go on record saying I, I don't like those. So I, I, I don't know, Tom, I, I'm guessing you don't agree with, with everything I say there, but that's sort of, to me, what's really moved people to social media from blogging is that that shortness and ease that you can use it. Well, it should surprise no one that I agree with most of what you said. I, I think uh, what I find what I find interesting when you talk about the fact that um, getting an instantaneous response and seeing likes and engagement, I would be remiss if I didn't point out the several times that you've let me know how much engagement some of your things are getting on LinkedIn and kind of what a you haven't really said what a rush it's given you. That's been my impression that it's been exciting to you. And I will say when I see lots of people like a photo that I do on Instagram, that's always very exciting. And you don't get that high or that that type of uh, engagement the same way on a blog post. It's just not going to happen. What I'm really hoping doesn't happen is that social media continues sort of its march as the shorter form for engagement and that people start to use that more often to engage rather than you know I, I don't I don't know that the, that the world has to be the too long didn't read uh, blog post I think that a lot of value can be given with a couple of short paragraphs to give some information on something lawyers can 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 provide a lot of good content in and just a you know a little bit of a little bit of uh, text and a little bit of explanation can go a long way, um, but you can't do that on social media, and really needs to be a blog uh, that it gets that it gets done in. So I guess my question back to you, Dennis, is kind of I think we've answered the question that was asked by your colleague at Michigan State, but what's our bottom line? Where where do we hit with that? Do we agree that social media has killed the blogging star? Uh, if we don't agree or do we have advice for uh, how people should react or deal with that potentiality? Yeah, let me just talk really briefly about uh, my uh, hashtag blog first approach, which is comes from the fact that I, I had 
lots of oracles over the years that were published on internet properties of somebody else, and I just assumed they were safe. Now, uh, a lot of it's gone, a lot of it's not findable anymore. And and the recency bias, I think, of the search engines um, also has an impact on that. So I think there is this notion of findability that's out there. And, and this comes to right back to the hub and spoke notion to say, like, I need to have one place where I can, where you can get to, even if it's I'm pointing you to LinkedIn or some other place, but one main place you go to, to find my stuff. And what worries me about social media is that, you know, I make all, you know, you make all these clever comments, you find great resources and you put them, you know, could be on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, wherever. Um, and then later you can't figure out where the heck you, you did that um, or whether you did it in an email. So findability, I think, has become a, a big part of this. And I don't know, Tom, if you want to say anything more about your approach to the hub and spoke, because typically it's blog is the hub and then everything is around that. Although there's definitely other ways that, that people can do that. But I think that is a great thing where you say, I, as a writer, um, you know, blogging is going to be the most important thing because it gives me the most control of what I'll call my art. And I don't have to worry about relying on other people, um, you know, like Medium and other places that potentially go out of business. Um or, or go behind paywalls or make my articles unreadable because of all the ads and videos they throw up. So um, I think that, that that blog piece, you do come back to it, but I just I still think the group blog thing is really difficult. And I, I like having the blog as my own, um, but my biases on that are probably pretty clear. I guess to wrap this up, I will only say I don't think that blogging is necessary just because you're a writer. You, Dennis, consider yourself a writer. I consider myself to a certain extent to be a writer, but I don't think lawyers have to view themselves that way in order to get value from having the blog. The blog is about providing content that is that is valuable to either the people you want to do business with or your peers or whoever your audiences are and, and what you want to deal with it. I still think that the hub and spoke approach it makes the most sense that having a base, I, I will say I need to put my money where my mouth is because I've been so off of my blog in the past two or three years. It's coming. I'm going to get jump the blog, jumpstart the blog again, but it's, it's been so hard to do with, uh, with all my other commitments, but I still, but I, but I, want to do it because I believe that having that hub is still important. I feel like that's what helps me maintain the spokes because it has gives me things to talk about to point people back to the blog. And I think that um, I think that rather than say that social media is killing the blog, I think frankly our advice from years ago still is good advice. I think that you have to think about more carefully how you want to use these spokes, how you want to use these channels, but I I don't think necessarily that social media is killing uh, blogging. I think it is um, helping it to find a new place to provide good, valuable content. Yeah, I think it's more of a reshaping than a killing. So, you know, if you talk about our usual thing of jobs to be done, what are you hiring a blog to do versus what you're hiring social media to do, you, you, you'll find that they make sense in different ways for different things. And if you 
look at all those channels as a portfolio, then you can pick the right, you know, the things that make sense for you and for the different audiences that you have. And that it's always worth, now I'll point back to Kevin O'Keefe as, as we end here, Tom, but that I look at blogging all these things from the point of view of communications, uh, you know, writing uh, and engagement with an audience. Uh, Kevin looks at these tools as a way to engage with people and to have conversations. And so there are a couple different styles that you can actually have uh, with blogging. And it's important to, to keep that in mind. And I think that's as good a place as any to stop. So before we move on to our next segment, let's take a break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. In this segment, we want to talk a bit about something uh, Dave Weiner, who's uh, currently celebrating 25 years of, of blogging, uh, said recently about the value of reviews, especially he was uh, talking in the context of TV shows and software reviews. And so the core argument was that uh, reviews that are based on just the first few shows of a TV series or to, for, from a few days of using software are are hardware he called them ridiculous uh, especially uh, for shows and with depth and long story arcs and, and software that has a learning curve that you need to go through before you really start to unlock the value at the same time I think that finding independent reviews is is harder and harder to do on Google and elsewhere where you really have confidence in the reviews. And a lot of times they, they, they're written really fast. You can tell somebody hasn't used a product for a long time. And so it's, it's really started to get me rethinking reviews. And so Tom, I thought this would be a, a good topic as we sort of head into what's in the, the tech world is the, uh, the tech gifts and holiday season and people are, are looking at reviews. And so I thought it might be good to say, to talk about what we think is going on out there with reviews these days, how they might differ from the past and how we might use them better. And maybe some tips and tricks for not getting sucked into all these self-running videos and ads and other things that they try to trick you to click on. So Tom, is the point I'm raising a big deal, a little deal or no deal at all to you? So I will say it's maybe a little deal, but it's not a deal that bothers me all that much. When a new product comes out, I think that people want to know, should I buy this? Um, sh you know, I've had people ask me already, should I get the new iPhone 11? I need a new phone. Should I get the new iPhone 11? I think it makes z zero sense to wait six months to write anything on a product, to write the, the initial review on a product, because people want to know now 
when a product comes out. When something comes out, they want to know, is this worth buying? Now, I think, frankly, what makes what might make sense and what I do see with some products and some blogs do this, some technology blogs, is actually a follow-up review, six months or a year in, to, to capture those who might just be getting around to looking at the product who say, you know, I've had this now for six months. Here's how my experience has been since I've had it. I think that's valuable, but I don't think that it preempts or means that you don't need an, a review that's created when, when the product actually comes out. I think it makes a lot of sense to see how some software or hardware lasts over the long haul. So I see some benefit to following up on those initial impressions. But I think that the overall purpose of the initial review is sound if you know how to, if you set your expectations appropriately. To give the consumer enough information about the product to know, is it overall a worthwhile product to look at? Are there reasons I shouldn't buy it? I hope that we all use enough common sense to take all reviews with a grain of salt. Um, you know, to, to know that a review isn't going to promise us that we too will love the product as much as the reviewer or or believe or agree with what the reviewer says once we have it in our hands. Um, if you're that kind of consumer, um, then it does make sense to wait a while before purchasing. Um, when I look at something, when I buy t a technology, I base my opinion kind of on the features that are there, whether they feel like the features work well, it may be when I get that technology that it doesn't work for me. That worked last year when I tried out all those different types of tablets, the, the Surface Go and the Google Slate, and they all got decent reviews, but they just weren't for me and for different reasons. And it had nothing to do with the review. But it, you come down to, Dennis, about independent reviews. For technology, I focus on two to three sites whose reviews I know I can trust. And, and generally, I'll say that's two to three sites, one for general technology, kind of one for Apple, one for Android. There are generally trusted sites for the different types of, tech, of, of companies out there. There's some Windows sites that are very good. And I think that it's very simple to find and trust those reviews. I trust them all. They're good writers. You're right. They don't spend a lot of time with things, but they are, I, I still trust what they're saying. If you want even more independent reviews, though, I don't have a problem going to YouTube. I see lots of non-experts who are posting their video reviews of their experiences with software and hardware. And sometimes it's a little bit more refreshing than you get from an expert tech outlet, getting somebody who's just a regular person like us, opening it up and using it and giving in their opinions about how it's worked. I mean, there's, I think, something to be said for looking at those types of, uh, of reviews as well. So I, I think I am, I'm, not, I'm not really as outraged as Dave Weiner is about reviews. I, I think there's a value to them if you know how to read them and take them with the grain of salt that I expect everybody should. What about you? I think it's a little bigger deal than, than you do. I mean, I, I agree with you on the follow-up, and I think that was a lot of, of Dave's point. And it is a little annoying, like if you're thinking about investing into like a Netflix series and you see these big, you know, like best show ever reviews from the first two or three episodes and you're, you're slogging through a season going, oh my God, this is terrible. Like when does it get better? You would wish that somebody would have kind of circled back back to that. So I think there is that that notion of, of follow-up that's that's good to have. I'll, I'll use an ex another example. As you get into the sort of religious wars on tech, 
I remember once where people were raving, uh, and I'm, I'm not saying this was you, Tom, being one of them, but people were just raving about a certain Samsung phone, and I got the chance to use one at work, and you know, because it had all that was the choice I made based on all these great interviews, and I, it became almost impossible for me to carry it in my pants pocket because I felt like my my thigh was going to get burned because it just ran so hot, and that you were like, "Hey, this should have been one of the things they listed." in the reviews. So I'd say follow up the need to have uh, trust in what you're doing. And then I would say two things, uh, as you did, Tom, I totally agree on the YouTube thing. You just want, it's nice to find somebody who really cares about this stuff and does a video and sort of shows how it works and what they like and how it compares with other things. And it seems like the YouTube, you know, on YouTube is the place you're more likely to find that these days. And the other trusted review place for me, and I, I think for you as well, Tom, is, is cool tools, both the podcasts and and the other things that they do. Uh, because I, it's the same sort of thing. Here's somebody who's really used something and they say, this is a tool that I can't live with. And that kind of review is is really attractive to me. Otherwise, you know, the, the quick reviews are really, to me, kind of tricky because you you lose that job-to-be-done element and then your people are talking about some tech specs that you you don't know whether are going to be important uh, to you or not. So I think Dave raises some, some good points, and it's good to read reviews very critically, especially where you can tell there's advertising and sponsorship behind them. But I think it's becoming uh, uh, more and more important deal. But now it's time for our parting shots at one tip website or observation. You can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So I have two quick parting shots. My first one is a follow-up on um, a segment that we did a couple of podcasts ago about the benefits of dark mode. I recently had the misfortune to um, have a torn retina, which is causing um, a floater in my eye. And I have noticed that um, looking at a white computer screen is incredibly annoying to me because that's all I see is the floater in front of it. But I have, in as many places as I can, gone to dark mode in places where I read. And reading dark mode, I can read a screen forever and it doesn't bother me at all. Um, and so I'm now just praying and hoping that Microsoft uh, moves Office to give a dark mode option because um, it's working so well for me, at least it, now with this with this issue with my vision. Um, second quick tip is um, if you're not already using Google Photos, here's another reason to use it. They've recently put a new feature in where you can um, hi, go in and select a number of photos that you have click one button and you can instantly send those pictures either to CVS or to Walgreens to get prints made um, with with one day uh, return on that. And, you know, nothing magic to it, but the fact that from within that app, you can automatically order prints and have them ready for you in a day. I, it just seems like a natural connection that a lot of photo apps don't really have. But for me, just one more reason to love the Google Photos app. Tom, I got a couple uh, self-promotional parting shots uh, for this episode. So the first one is a PDF, free PDF download I'm doing. Just go to my my uh, website and you'll find a number of links to get this. It's called 57 Tips for Successful Innovation Outcomes in Law, uh, which coincidentally echoes the title of a new book I'll have coming out called Successful Innovations Outcomes in Law. 
and which is a, a, a practical guide for law firms, law departments, and other legal organizations. And that should be available very, very soon because it's in the page proof stage. Uh, look for that on, on Amazon. Also, Allison Shields and I have a new book uh, coming out called uh, Make LinkedIn Work for You, a completely new approach for us to uh, LinkedIn with a focus on, on the legal profession. And uh, as Tom mentioned earlier, uh, it's always a good time to, uh, to check out the second edition of our collaboration tools and technologies book. And so that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. I would say at this point that you can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com, but any visitor to that site will notice that we haven't updated in a while, and that's because right now it's a little bit broken. So we are looking at new ways to give our show notes. Uh, stay tuned, and we will provide you with an update on that shortly. If you do like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts along with transcripts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we really love to hear from you. Please reach out to us on LinkedIn or leave us a voicemail. That number is 720-441-6820. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. And you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. And we'll see you next time for another episode of the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network. <laughs>